Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hello there. I'm your host, Sarah Buino, and I'm a psychotherapist in the Chicago area. Today, we are talking to some folks from Therapy Reimagined, and they have a podcast called the Modern Therapist Survival Guide Podcast. And I don't even remember how I discovered it. I think the coolest stuff that I stumble on in my life, I can never remember how I found it. And this is one of those things. So I've been listening to their podcast and reached out and they were so generous to join me today for this amazing conversation. So let me tell you a little bit about Modern Therapist Survival Guide and Katie Vernoy and Kurt Widhelm. Modern Therapist Survival Guide podcast, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. It's time to reimagine therapy and what it means to be a therapist. We are human beings who can now present ourselves as whole people with authenticity, purpose, and connection. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy, talk about how to approach the role of therapist in the modern age, which if you've been listening to this podcast, I mean, come on, you know, that's right up my alley. So more about Katie. Katie Vernoy is a therapist, coach, and consultant supporting leaders, visionaries, executives, and helping professionals to create sustainable careers. Katie, together with Kurt, has developed workshops and a conference called Therapy Reimagined to support therapists navigating through the modern challenges of this profession. Katie is also president of the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists. And Kurt Widhelm is a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice in the Los Angeles area. He's the chief financial officer for the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists, an adjunct professor at Pepperdine University, a former subject matter expert for the California Board of Behavioral Sciences, and a loving husband and father. And now a friend. They're both friends. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. So make sure to tune into their podcast, which is called The Modern Therapist Survival Guide. But before you do that, listen to this conversation with Kurt and Katie. And now some info about our new sponsor. So I said before, I normally wouldn't advertise for something that I didn't personally use myself, but one of my very, very best friends, Sarah Suzuki, who is also on episode 19, is a big endorser of this service. So our sponsor today is the receptionist for iPad, the top digital check-in software for therapy offices and behavioral health clinics. The receptionist for iPad is a simple, modern, private way for your clients to check in for their visit. When a client checks in, an immediate notification is sent to the therapist via text or email. The receptionist for iPad is a great tool to help automate visitor check-ins and allow your clients to get to their provider more quickly and discreetly. Piper Bursmeyer is the founder and co-owner of MedRx Partners. Piper says the receptionist for iPad increases our workflow and access to patients exceptionally. It's a great patient experience and I don't think practices realize how efficient something like this can make their office. You too can use the receptionist for iPad and you can sign up for a 14-day free trial of the receptionist by going to thereceptionist.com/healer. Hello Katie and Kurt, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hi. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you guys. And I was super excited because I just listened to one of your latest podcast episodes where, Katie, you literally said the words wounded healer. And I was like, and we're talking this week. Oh, my God. We get to really dig into it. Yes. Yeah. So I'd love to start off the show by having each of you tell people who you are and what you do. 
I'm Kurt Withelm, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in Los Angeles. I have a group practice. I teach at Pepperdine University. And alongside Katie, we have the Modern Therapist Survival Guide podcast and our co-founders and co-hosts of the Therapy Reimagined Conference. I'm Katie Vernoy. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist also, and I am in the Los Angeles area. And I work with wounded healers, uh, leaders, visionaries, and others in my therapy practice to help them create sustainable careers. I also am a consultant for therapists who often are wounded healers and help them to grow their practices. So, Mm -hmm. and then I do that stuff with Kurt. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That other stuff, you know, that other stuff. Yeah. And I, I don't even know how I found your podcast. And I think that's just the coolest, usually the coolest stuff comes to me via magic. And I just stumble upon it. And and I can't remember what the first episode was that I listened to. It might have been, does CBT suck? Or what, what was the title of that one? Uh, CBT crap. <laughs> CBT crap, suck, crap, whatever. And I was like, ooh, I think I might be friends with these people. And I just, I really, really appreciate how how honest you both are and that you're asking people to show up as humans. And it's a conversation that we've needed to have in this field for a really long time. Yeah, we have really been having this conversation for quite a few years and just kind of thought that there's other people out there like us that we we want to create kind mm-hmm. of a home and a place to have these ideas around the way that therapists get trained, get told how to think about the profession that once we launch out into the practice, it just doesn't seem like what we're doing is actually what we were told that we're going to be doing. And we really wanted to tackle the profession in a way that's honest and reflective of what's really going on and finding a path along the way that what we're being told is only half of the story. I think the other big piece about kind of showing up as you are is that it was always a fallacy that we could be a blank slate. It was always a fallacy that we could not bring ourselves into the room. And I think it was predicated on this notion that therapists or doctors or psychiatrists or whatever were white men. And so, you know, they were the norm and all the Mm -hmm. rest of us were not. And so when we actually look at the diversity of the profession, when we look at the diversity of clients, who we are walks into the room with us and we have to be really aware of that. We have to understand what we bring into the room and and how it impacts us in order to really be effective clinicians. Because mm-hmm. thinking that we're just blank slates or able to not have our stuff come into the room with us is just, you know, BS. Right. And I want to dig into that stuff. But first, I want to hear a little bit more about your history of why did you become therapists? So I became a therapist because motivation and emotion sounded like an acting class. And I needed a backup major for theater. Oh, seriously? Oh, wow. (laughs) So many of us have music or theater backgrounds. It's funny. Oh, yeah. So I think for me, it was something where I was able to kind of identify my interest in psychology very early on. And then as I was trying to do professional theater in Los Angeles, I found that my backup job was much more interesting. And so I went back, got my master's. And then as I study wounded healer and all that stuff, I recognized I became a therapist because of my family dynamics. Right. But you know, the story about it being an acting class, you know, akin to an acting class sounds much better. (laughs) I I love the story about what happened in our childhood that really calls us to the profession, you know, do you feel like it's a, a calling for you? Sure. Yeah. Because you know, the, the traditional kind of parentified child, Mm -hmm. the 
role of my family. Like those are the things that as I was studying for, you know, kind of doing some talks on what I call sacrificial helping syndrome, which is kind of aligned with what you're talking about. I was like finding out why we became therapists. And as I was reading it, I was like, oh, shit. And I didn't know and I feel so normal, but now I feel not normal. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things where, you know, as I learned more about it, I was like, okay, this is why I actually became a therapist. It's because of the value I find in helping others and the, the benefit that I feel like I can bring to people in these situations. But I didn't realize it going in. I kind of just backed into it. <laughs> How about you, Kurt? So I was a little hellraiser as a child and got kind of shoved into therapy not by choice when I was in middle school. And after, I don't know, about six, nine, 12 months of being in therapy and kind of recognizing like, oh, I can do these things in better, more productive ways. And I can grow up and help other people do this. And I can steer people around and use and these powers for good. Yeah, use these powers <laughs> for good rather than just being manipulative. So I kind of set my path in like eighth grade of like, I'm going to go and do therapy. And I was on the more straight line from that point. I got my psychology undergrad. I moved to Los Angeles to go to grad school and really have kind of still taken that attitude and that energy into the work that I do. I work a lot with teenage guys that just are in very similar behavior patterns that I was. And I really try to bring that flavor into the practice that I do because, you know, a lot of a lot of the teenagers don't want to come into therapy. And so I tell their parents in the mm-hmm. intake phone call, like, hey, if at the end of the first session, if they're like, okay, that wasn't bad. Like that is an absolute win for oh, an intake win. session. Yeah. So yeah. that is that is my goal is to be like, all right, fine, I'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hate it. Right? <laughs> So that's that's how I've gotten here. And then just kind of getting involved in some of the professional organizations and moving into more and more leadership positions that recognizing that I still have that little bit of a, a chip on my shoulder as far as hell, we can we can do things better. Like we don't have to just take on these old roles and, and mm-hmm. rules are kind of the things that contribute to people not wanting to address mental health, kind of the things right. that contribute to therapists looking weird and like skittish off in the corner someplace like we should be out and out and proud of her weirdness <laughs> wait wait what are you talking about Kurt? you're saying like people are weird in the corner <laughs> oh, oh, ther- therapists in general just like we go into a room and we have to like evaluate everybody who's in there and we have to make this calculated plan of where where are we going to fit in and how are people going to respond to that and you know really have kind of this stiff upper lip and then be like okay now that now that you know professional me i can just like ease into you know okay now i can let my weirdness out and so <laughs> while everybody else is just like going into the room and like all right i'm socializing and there's that guy over there who's just like looking at everybody until i let myself in it's like that's the kind of stuff that we can be normal people outside of our professional roles that we can get past and and just go out and be and that's so much of that underlying aspect of of the work that we're doing I mean, I think I walk in a room and I can't help but look weird. So <laughs> I might be doing I might be doing it a little differently than you. <laughs> well, I know. I'm, I'm, yeah, he's like hiding behind the, his beard. Too. Here. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
I mean, that kind of begs the question, what's getting in the way of people showing up as people, as therapists? What are you seeing? What are you hearing from your students or from other people? I'm guessing that the conference gives you a great deal of information about the field, at least in your area. There is so much that graduate education towards being a therapist teaches people how to do and doesn't focus on how to be. So what this leaves us with is these really highly educated people who don't know how to act. And that just kind of creates this professional anxiety around like, well, I know what to do once I get people to me, but how do I get them to like me? And it's it's basically like middle school all over again. Like you walk in with like, you know, well, my, my older brother told me to do this, but like, what if they don't like me? Is, that, <laughs> is this really like common anxiety that a lot of therapists have and it doesn't make us approachable? Whether that's getting clients to come to our practices, getting people in the first couple of sessions to really appreciate us, but especially that authentic work of really having real human relationships that if we can get over that obstacle of getting people to connect with us by being aware of ourselves and how that impacts other people, that's somehow gotten lost in how we've trained therapists because everything Mm -hmm. seems to have shifted towards this idea of here's this checklist, these interventions, Mm -hmm. and the interventions work, but you know, check them off and then push people along the way. Mm-hmm. I see it a little bit differently. I, I agree that there's this notion of we have to do this checklist therapy, but I was taught how to be as a therapist. I was taught to be beige with no mm-hmm. ring signifying whether or not I was married. I was taught to be beige, you know, like I can't show up. And I think for me, what I'm really hearing and not necessarily at the conference, because the people at the conference are ready to show up. So mm-hmm. some, of them, some yeah. of them are like, how do I do this legally, ethically, clinically, effectively? But mm-hmm. I think that there's the folks that kind of push back and say, how dare you? Or this is irresponsible Mm. or those types of things. They're folks who believe that if therapists show up, if they take any space up, that somehow they are taking away from the utility of the clinical work. They're taking away from the client. To me, that's something that's just so wrong because if we're not in relationship and if we're not really in relationship, if we are just like a cardboard box in relationship to a person, it doesn't help It doesn't actually get into what clients are coming in for because the world's not unconditionally positively regarding them. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it is great to have that space where there's less judgment, criticism, pushback, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. But I think for us to be completely invisible doesn't actually give them the feedback that they need. I think it needs to be about Mm -hmm. them, not about us, but I don't think that means Mm -hmm. that we're invisible. And I think of so many therapists, especially, you know, old therapists like me are like, we were trained 20 years ago to be invisible, to be Mm -hmm. a blank slate, to be literally a mirror and that's it. And not to actually show up. And I think anything different is just people are afraid. That's exactly what I was going to say. Cause What I'm seeing with students and when I do presentations, a lot of what I see is fear. It's fear of showing up in the wrong way, fear of hurting people, but also fear of really looking inward, fear of really looking in the mirror, right? And I'm trying to figure out what, like, how do we hack into this fear and help people move through it? Like, you know, some people will be, oh, you're so fearless. And, but no, I fucking feel it. I just, I just don't (laughs) care. I just do it anyway, right? So yeah, I'm curious for each of you individually, you decided to answer that call to do your own work and to be brave in this field. What was it that gave you the courage to do that? 
<laughs> well, to even go to therapy, like when I when I tell some of my I always tell my students, you know, you should be in therapy. If you're not in therapy, this is negligent. And there's always one in the class that'll like side eye me. And I'm like, I am watching you for your attitude. And I just I get so <laughs> sad about that. Like, why are you in this fucking profession if you don't want to be in therapy yourself? A big part of of how it happens is a couple of things. One is just how siloed our profession is that, yeah. you know, we get told, you know, follow the research and then you have a bunch of researchers off in research labs, you know, spitting out like, hey, CBT works for everything all the time, everywhere. And then that gets handed off to the educators and right. the insurance companies as as far as like, here's the way that things have to be practiced. That's mm -hmm, what the researchers say. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, these researchers haven't actually seen clients themselves in like 15 years. And Exactly. <laughs> or more. We end up with kind of these these silos of we have the research silo and then we have the education silo that's kind of parroting the the researchers. And then we have the practice end of things. And mm -hmm. so what we end up launching a lot of therapists into is a whole lot of chaos that hasn't really communicated in between mm -hmm. e each of the different silos. And so what they end up doing is they end up looking for these mentors who are 15, 20, 30 years into their practice, which is a good thing, but is not reflective necessarily of where the experience is of people in the profession now. And so mm -hmm. you have these mentees who are, well, I don't want to look bad in front of the mentor, like, you know, and you don't really want to connect with the people that you've gone to school with because they're going to judge you in class. And so there ends up just becoming this whole internalization process of, I can't talk to anybody about these things. I don't want to look bad in front of the people who are actually good at this, or at least we're good at it when they, you know, hit their, you know, path along the way. So a lot of this anxiety, a lot of this shame gets held onto and doesn't allow for really that full exploration of, okay, yeah, I'm out there willing to make some mistakes and hey, you're, you know, coming to me for some support or advice or listening to the things that we talk about where it's really like, you know, go out there and be bold about what you do and it might not work. But listen to what's not working and evaluate why. And that's where that growth comes from. I think the reason, you know, kind of answering the call, so to speak, I recognized in myself a developmental process of becoming a person. And this speaks to the kind of wounded healer thing that you talk about. I think about the different traumas and experiences that I've gone through. And, and the defensive structure was to help other people and to hide behind. I am the helper. I am the expert. And so as I started right. recognizing, and this, and I say, said therapy flippantly earlier, but as I recognized in my work with my therapist, me holding myself to this standard of perfection on coping and pretty much everything, because that was more comfortable than being vulnerable and messy and real. When that started crumbling, I recognized that this is something that is promoted by the profession. I mean, and, and this is agreeing with Kurt, but like this idea that we have to be perfect, that anything less than perfection hurts our clients or is a liability, mm -hmm. that if we bring ourselves into the room, there's those things. And for me, I found in my most human moments with my clients, when I had a flippant comment or whatever, like sometimes it was total crap and it was horrible. But like most of the time, those were the most impactful moments in the therapy process was when I was a human being having a, having a moment and being able to have the conversation, to be able to model for my client how I cope with it, to be able to mm -hmm. do the repair attempts for the client. I right. started recognizing when I truly showed up, I was able to then do 
deeper work because I recognized who I was in the room. And so for me, when I started recognizing this, and I worked in South Los Angeles with men and women on welfare and kids in the, the DCFS and, and, you know, kind of probation system. So these are folks that were not going to put up with me being an ivory tower, right. you know, scholar trying to, to test things on them. Yes, we did, you know, kind of research and outcome measures, but it was very much about like, you had to be real or this wasn't going to work. When I came out into private practice and Kurt and I were working together in the professional organization that we still are very much a part of, we started having these conversations and recognizing that nobody was having these conversations. Mm. And so it became something where it was like, why aren't people having these conversations? Like I'm getting people coming into my therapy practice saying, my previous therapist was horrible because they, they didn't see me. They didn't give me any idea about what they were thinking. I felt so, so disconnected. Mm-hmm. And I was this is a problem. We have to do something. And of course, you know, being as egotistical as the two of us are, we're like, well, let's do a podcast and a conference and like try to change the world (laughs) versus like, let's do something, you know, kind of reasonable. And so (laughs) that's what we did. (laughs) Well, the other thing this is making me think of too is a lot of my personal growth work in addition to therapy has come from advanced level trainings. And One of the things that makes me absolutely bonkers is when I see people complaining about having to get a certain number of CEUs. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, if you go to a one hour CEU seminar, it really doesn't tell you shit about anything, Mm -hmm. let alone about yourself. And so, of course, there's an accessibility issue because these things are very expensive. So there's a lot of stuff going on there, but the desire for learning, the desire for self-growth, I think is missing probably because in grad school, we're not setting people up to understand that this is a continuous process. You're not done once you get your master's and then your clinical license. And, you know, there's plenty of research about how worthless continuing education units actually are <laughs> on client treatment. And in, in our grand scheme of changing everything, we, we should move continuing education out of our legal code and into our ethical codes. Because mm. if we're going to force people, I, and this, this is really kind of where Katie and I started. We were sitting in the back of one of those one hour CE workshop things being mm-hmm. like, Holy all Lord. of these people, all of these people are bored <laughs> or they're going to buy into the certification right. process. We mm-hmm. should sell a certification process was the joke that we made. We st- yeah, we started planning on how many different types of certification processes we could create to make yeah. lots of money on worthless right. training. Right. It but, would be so easy. But what you're talking about, Sarah, is it has to come from within of mm-hmm. really wanting to do these things. You can go to the, the best CE presentations, but if it's not something that sparks you, then you're not going right. to follow through on it. You're not really going to embrace it and make it your own, you're going to go and you're going to check off your box and be like, oh, this intervention doesn't work or I don't understand because I tuned out from minutes 20 to 45 because I was checking (laughs) Instagram and (laughs) or Reddit. Yeah. Well, I'd love to shift into the healer question with the two of you, because when I think of Therapy Reimagined as the brand for this conference, I I think it's a, like you said, Katie, it's not a a small feat to want to take over the world and change it, right? So I'm curious when you think about not only the work that you do as individual therapists, but also as people really on the front lines of, of trying to shift the voice of this profession, do you relate to yourselves as healers? I know I do. The idea of being a healer is a powerful one because 
it has these ties to even more spiritual aspects of it. And so for me, it mm-hmm. just feels like this title that ties into so many different aspects of what we do. And so to me, I feel like I'm a therapist healer. I'm also a healer of healers because mm-hmm. so many of them can't sustain their careers. And so that's part of it. And then in the, you know, the big overblown, I want to heal the world. I think that if we are able to heal our profession and Mm -hmm. really get us to a place where we can be more respected, we can decrease stigma when we can really look at how do we take care of the, the individuals who are doing this important work when we can actually fix that. I mean, you look at how many problems in the world seem to stem from relationship issues, mental health concerns, you know, way gigantic overblown narcissism and not just me and Kurt. When like maybe our at, president? Yeah, I'm not going to comment on politics right this moment, but, you know, not in a direct way. Like my audience would be into it. Yeah, yeah. So, so would ours. But I think it's something where when we think about what a difference it would make for us as a society, if we could actually get mental health as a main kind of stanchion under, you know, kind of how we operate and working in mental wellness. I think it does heal the world, but we can't do that without the healers doing it. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever considered myself a healer, but yes, in that, in that genre of, I see, you know, so much of the the clinical work that I do really comes from a place of providing the opportunities for people to self-heal and really pulling from their own internal strengths. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a healer in that way, but so much of the ideology that I take both in my clinical work and then also on the professional level is that we each have a power within ourselves to evaluate what we're doing, to make different choices, to have different acceptance about ourselves and about what we're willing to tolerate within the world around us. And really pulling from those internal strengths helps clients. And really, as far as the broader changes that Katie and I are advocating for in our profession, takes the the collective movement of all of us. And we have always talked about what we're doing on social media is hashtag therapy movement. And we've really kind of danced around this idea of this is bigger than the two of us that we are, mm-hmm. we are, we are a part of the therapy movement. We, we mm-hmm. just happen to be, you know, the ones up front at first, but our goal is that this has to come from within all of us to, to mm-hmm. make this shift together. And so in that way, I look at it more of being a guide or, or being mm-hmm. a person to challenge that own self-inspiration. Yeah. Well, I was thinking the other day, I want this information for therapists because we're on the front lines of really helping a lot of people, but also to parents. I think if Mm -hmm. there was more support and healing for parents so that they could be okay, so that they're not passing their trauma then down to their children, right? And then like you talked about shifting to be more supportive of of health and mental health. I do not know what it's going to take other than everything being burnt to the ground for our country mm. to, to start thinking that way, right? I mean, like, I literally just kind of, sometimes I get really scared thinking, what is going to happen when the insurance industry collapses? Because I just don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know how we're going to get to a more supportive place unless it's burnt to the ground. I, I will talk about burning things down around our systems all day long. But... Sweet. Well, I got some matches, Kurt. Let's do this. 
because, and this is part of what inspired the reimagined part of what we're doing, is mm-hmm. that to get outside of the systems as we're having it, that for everything that moves mental health care access up is mm-hmm. something where that potentially makes a profession that doesn't pay super well, considering the cost of investment to get in it, even lower. And so, right. yeah, we, we can create more jobs if those jobs don't pay anything. If they don't cover right. the cost of getting into the profession, then eventually we're just going to end up back into another mental health crisis. Right. So well, we can even take it further and say, do we burn down the educational system because of the predatory mm-hmm. practices of giving these gigantic, hugely right. expensive programs with no right. guarantee of a job at right. the end? I mean, like we could burn a lot of things down. Do it. <laughs> do it. Right. (laughs) Whereas I think that's why we are therapy reimagined. We're not burn it down and build it back up from the ashes. It's let's reimagine it and let's take Mm -hmm. a step aside and a step outside and walk alongside and see if we can just get a whole bunch of people onto our road and not burn that one down. Just make it irrelevant. Well, Kurt and I will be burning things behind you. I know. So I will I will just allow you guys to burn stuff down and I will blissfully go forward and be like, wow, all these people are coming onto our path. This is so wild. I knew I was right. We didn't have to burn it down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm curious, Katie, you've mentioned the term wounded healer several times. So I'm I'm gonna guess your answer to this question, but do you consider yourselves wounded healers as well? Well, I will go first since you already asked. But yeah, I do consider myself a wounded healer. I've been in therapy. I actually wasn't in therapy as a kid. The joke was that I was my parents' couples counselor when I was a kid. But uh, (laughs) so there there was Mm. a part of the wounded. It was something where I started therapy in grad school because I thought, well, I probably should try it out if I'm going to be a therapist. And it was at that point that I recognized some of the family dynamics. And my family is very close. There's not this kind of, oh, my gosh, it was so horrible. But it was just there were things that I think led Mm -hmm. me there. I think the other thing is I had a lot of medical stuff when I was a kid. And so Mm -hmm. the, the, the staying was always... Well, it helps you to empathize and understand other people that have problems. And for me, that didn't feel good as a kid, but I certainly recognize where it falls in now. But I do understand what it's like to understand your mortality at a very young age, I think is something that Mm. not many people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, This is one of those terms in our field that's almost kind of adopted so many people. And I see kind of two different factions within wounded healers. There's the wounded healers who've done their work and there's the wounded healers who haven't. And I've conceptualized the the ones who've done their work almost as as scarred healers. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, I'm I'm bringing Mm -hmm. the story and this impact from the past that allows me to, to continue to bring it. Whereas wounded might not be all the way through you know, what you're working on. It might make you Mm -hmm. blind to things that are going on. So I'm scarred healer in this context Mm -hmm. that that falls within that broader wounded healer complexity because it is what allows us to connect to other people. And it is being able to tap within our own emotions and, and the wide array of experiences that humans are capable of and being able to empathize with those. Yeah. And as you were talking, I was actually thinking... I have asked this question over a hundred times now. And so there's just a handful of answers I get pretty much every time. And so one of the big things that that we've come to, which Kurt, you were pretty much saying is that are we acting from our wounds or are we using our wounds as information? And 
when I think about our profession overall, and then moving it even bigger to our, our country, really, all these systems, so much of what we're doing in these systems is living from our wounds, really living in our trauma, really acting out all of this trauma that our country has experienced. And it's so fascinating and scary how, you know, the Me Too movement, right? There's the Black Lives Matter, all these things that are coming to the surface that we're just no longer willing to ignore the fact that there's this festering wound in our country for so long. And that's just it, is it's that willingness to look at it and move on from it or be able to embrace it and heal it versus mm -hmm. screaming about how somebody else's wound isn't as bad as the wound that we're dealing with. And I think also with the wounded, the, the wounds of our country and the wounds of each one of us, I think that there is not a a space for the healing in a lot of in a lot of ways. I think that right. people are not giving themselves or as a society, we're not giving them the time to really process integrate, do all the things that we need to do to really be able to move forward and become, in Kurt's words, scarred healers. I think if I were to answer your question directly, like, am I working from my place of my wound or do I use it as information? I think both. Mm. I think in truth, as a human being living in the in society today and all those mm -hmm. things, there's, there's so much that just breaks my heart. And I know that even in the room, there are times when I have to really pay attention to, is this me being upset with mm -hmm. a, an injustice that my client is facing? Or am I helping this client to cope? Am I, am I seeing them? And so I, I had a conversation with a client yesterday, the day before, and she's dealing with some horrible things. And I just said, it's not fair. And then she went back and started talking about how she's perspective and life's not fair. And she was able to, and I was like, I don't, we joked about it because this is a very long standing client. I'm just sitting here going like, mm -hmm. so you're not supposed to be reassuring me. Right, <laughs> right. You know, like, and it doesn't have to be, one or the other. It can be unfair and it can be the reality and that you can cope with it and you're going to be okay. But I just, I right. recognized in that moment that I was going from a place of wound, thinking about her, thinking about yeah. the things that are in my past that felt connected to her, as well as trying to support her and see her and, and help amplify her emotions and all the things we do as therapists. But mm -hmm. I don't know that I can say it's one or the other because I still feel yeah wounds on a, on a daily basis, not necessarily deep wounds, not necessarily the ones mm -hmm. that have started over that I've processed. And I feel like I mm -hmm. am continuing to do my work. I'm still in therapy, but I, I don't think I can completely say, oh, I only use it as information because yeah. I know that as a human being, I continue to have these things come up. Yeah. And I guess to have that as a goal to only use it as information, we're really, we're really not touching into the humanity if that's the goal. It's making me think so have you guys heard of NARM? Yeah, I don't think I have. Neuroaffective yeah. relational model. So it's a it's a model working with developmental and relational trauma instead of shock trauma. And I've okay. been doing training in that. And there's one book that I was recommended to read that's not part of the program, but talking about instead of talking about shame, talking about self-hate, because that's really what it is, right? We're hating mm -hmm. on ourselves. And so in this book, it was written in 1975. It's called Compassion and Self-Hate. And in the book, he talked about and I think he said it this way, but I'll say it and then unpack it. So he was like, how narcissistic is it of me to when I'm upset about something, like personalize it and, and continue to hate on myself because of it. So I'm thinking about your client when you said that's just not fair. So I went to uh, New Orleans a couple weeks ago. My husband and I went to a plantation and he specifically picked a plantation that really talked about the experience of the slaves. And after we left, I was 
beside myself with overwhelm and sadness and just, just, I was just like, how is the world going to get better? And I'm crying and I'm just like, oh, and when I stopped to like, think about, okay, how am I centering myself in this and making it about me? Because I, in that moment was feeling helpless because I can't fix it. And I'm comparing myself to this ideal of someone who could fix everything. Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, I was absolutely like living in the wound and then able to step outside of it and recognize, oh, wait, this isn't about me. And I'm not going to be able to help coming from this helpless place. But yes. if I soften that and give myself space to just be sad about what happened, then I can take action in some way. So I feel like the developmental trauma stuff has become so, I don't know, man, you know, you do your work and then all of a sudden you get hit with another level of depth and you're like, fuck, I thought I did this shit already. I know, right? right? Ooh, yeah. Hi, and I think, again, it comes back to awareness. And right. there's a huge mindfulness component that right. I end right. up bringing to a lot of my work. And it's about every time that I think that I've got it going on that I'll sit in meditation and be like, nope, don't have it yet. That's <laughs> just, uh, you know, that, that constant, like, I'm never going to reach enlightenment. I'm not on, on that spiritual path, but it takes that dedicated monitoring what's going on for us that mm -hmm. whether where's the clients, whether where's the clinicians mm -hmm. and being able to create that space to look at it, to have reactions to it, and then to be able to choose what to do with those reactions. Right. Yeah. Katie, anything else? Nope. <laughs> no, no, that just, I mean, that covered it for me because I think it, it is yeah. just really about being able to be mindful and understand what process mm -hmm. you're in and how it impacts your ability to take action. So mm -hmm. you guys all said it. It's good. Sweet. So I'm just pulling this question out of my ass. If <laughs> you <laughs> if you could fantasize about where therapy reimagined is going to go, what the conference is in the next 10 years and what changes that has to affect our field, what would your fantasies be? One of the really cool things that happened even after the first couple that we've had is now we're in the planning stages for our third one. Okay. Is somebody right before our first conference had written a blog about just looking at the faculty that we had chosen and noticed that over half of our faculty were women. Nearly a third were racial or ethnic minorities. We had main stage speakers coming from LGBTQ plus backgrounds that really brought the diversity of the profession out on stage. Yeah. And the very next year, we were hearing from professional organizations. We need to be more like therapy reimagined. And and we were this, you know, little 150 person conference at this nice. point. Nice. And a little conference so, that could. Yes. Right. <laughs> and so we see we see these other conferences, you know, the the big ones, the you know, one that bills itself is uh, you know, the Woodstock? The Woodstock of the therapy profession, the evolution, oh. you know, that one, where <laughs> <laughs> they bring the rock stars of therapy, the mm -hmm. founders of therapy mm -hmm. to, to their conference. And they have been receiving criticism from us for at least six years about diversity yeah. and yeah. are making very, very little headway. So in 10 years, what we would like is for therapy to stop addressing the profession for what it used to be and to address it for what it is at the time. 
Fuck yes. And where it's going. Because I think yeah. that's the thing that we've, the way that I've been, you know, in our call for speakers, I wrote it up as like fresh, diverse voices. If we continue to look at the folks who have been the founders, it really comes from a very patriarchal, heteronormative, mm-hmm. white place. And to me, that doesn't really reflect where the profession is. I mean, depending on which which license you're looking at, we're like up to 80% women. There's huge mm-hmm. amounts of diversity. And so last year, for, so for 2019, our conference was even more women and even more diverse. And, you know, mm. we have big plans for this year too. I think it's just, it's something where in looking at finding people who have something important to say, who are great speakers who don't necessarily feel like they fit on other stages. I think for mm-hmm. us, as we continue forward, we want to be that stage that amplifies the voices of the people who are really in the profession, who are really innovating and creating the community around that. Because I think yeah. there's there's a complacency and there's a, a formality, I think, to other conferences and to other types of communities. Mm-hmm. And so I think being able to be a community that can hold all of the people that are actually in the profession and help to nurture them and move them forward and to do this thing of improving the profession and making sure that we're becoming better therapists. That's the goal. What does it look like in 10 years? I mean, I think there's potentially moving the conference around the country. It could be Mm -hmm. going international, like, or it could just be continuing Mm -hmm. to ground ourselves in the Los Angeles area. I don't know, but I think for Mm -hmm. us, we're really open to collaborating with whoever is in this with us because the more people, and, and like Kurt was saying before, this is a movement that we've started it, but we aren't the people to continue it. We are the people that mm-hmm. will create the space, but it's so much right. more than us. And so we're always looking at how it expands and the people who join, the people who are part mm-hmm. of the hashtag therapy movement are going to shape this as much as we are. Yeah. Well, you've got a friend in Chicago. If you ever want to burn <laughs> shit down, you know that. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, just to, with matches. That's right. That's right. So to kind of wind this down, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you feel like is really important to share with with my listeners? Not that you don't talk enough and say all the things you need to say anyway, but with my people. With your people. <laughs> yeah. This is something where, you know, you hear that being a therapist is is calling. And that calling doesn't have an end point to it and to continue to grow and to continue Mm -hmm. to find your hunger that keeps bringing you back to doing what you can do to your very best. And there's a lot of pitfalls that can happen along the way that you will run into. And it's about the resiliency of being able to get through those that is really what makes us a lifelong learning lesson and a Mm -hmm. lifelong path to continue to evaluate yourself, to continue to show up and serve your clients and serve the profession. To add to that is that there's not one way to be in this profession. And I think there's a lot of innovation that's happening that potentially follows the same traps as previous, which is Mm. must be this way. Mm-hmm. We must fit into this box. And I think if I could pass along a message to all the folks who are entering the field or who are at a mm-hmm. stuck point, it's really getting back grounded with who you are and how you want to show up in the world. Because so often it can be a lot of loud voices saying that you have to do something and it can be so, I don't know what the right word is, just so overwhelming. It can mm-hmm. and consuming and it can also just be crushing, soul crushing. And so Mm -hmm. really empowering all of your listeners to work on their wounds, 
and feel empowered to use those wounds and use their humanity to, to give back to the world in whatever way it makes sense to them. Yeah. Amazing. I'm just, I'm so impressed with everything that you both are doing and I'm, I'm so, so glad we get to sit down and have this conversation. Yes. So cool. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much to Katie and Kurt. I really appreciated your time. Make sure that you go listen to their podcast, The Modern Therapist Survival Guide. It is fantastic, and I think that you'll really enjoy it. And thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. To find out more about these fancy folks, you can go to www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Until next time, bye-bye.